HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. And it's uh, Tuesday, August 9th, 2022, recording remotely with uh, friends from all around the world today. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about yeast, but some of the history and traditions with with bread and beer. And, of course, we're going in way over my head, and um, we're all going to learn something from it. So let's go around the room and introduce each other. Um, I'm Jimmy, so let's uh, ask Lars. My name is uh, Lars Mojuskosu. I'm from Norway. I'm a researcher in yeast and traditional farmhouse brewing. And we had Lars on a couple years ago talking about his book, uh, The Historic Brewing Techniques. And uh, Pete? Yep. Pete Langell Fushimi, a craft brewer based out of New York City. And Pete's one of our go-to expert brewer scientists uh, for, for many shows. It's great to have you back. And Eric? Hi there, Eric Pallant. I'm in uh, Meadville, Pennsylvania, and I'm the author of a recent book called Sourdough Culture. It's a book about the history of uh, sourdough yeast and bacteria and bacon. Great. Well, thank you guys all for joining. So, Pete, it's great to have you back on. Um, it's funny, it was just a couple of years ago that you were the first brewer to tell me about the kvike yeast. Um, but bring us up to date. Like, what, what, what was it about kvike? It kind of like took everyone by storm, you know. What 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 what, what were people brewing with Fike a couple of years ago? I think I think originally um, I was attracted to it, and probably most brewers by its extreme high temperature tolerance, and at the same time, as a result of that, the speed at which it fermented beers. Um, this is a like. Most yeast strains or the standard yeast strain that craft brewers have been using since the 70s is like US05 Cal Ale yeast, um, the yeast that uh, Sierra Nevada uses. And that ferments, to give you an idea, at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. 
and Kvike. And if you ferment that much higher, even into like mid 70s, it'll start producing some terrible off character called uh, uh, fusel alcohols that make the beer undrinkable and give you a terrible hangover. Um, so you have to really tightly regulate that temperature around 68 Fahrenheit. And then this, uh, this strain of Kvike, actually there's multiple ones, but this yeast that suddenly appeared on the market out of, I guess, uh, well, Lars will tell us, but Norway probably originally, um, there's this huge buzz about this yeast strain that ferments happily at 85 and above and does not produce these uh, fusel alcohols. So it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of insane for what, compared to what people were used to um, as far as yeast wrangling goes and the speed at which it ferments, it's like done in a couple days. So it kind of revolutionized uh, <clears throat> tank time <clears throat> in, in craft brewing and tank time is that's, your tank residence time is how long your beer is in fermentation, and that is the big bottleneck for craft brewers, your, your fermentation, how many fermenters you have, and how long the beers are in there. And uh, I could just keep going down a rabbit hole here. But, oh, um, you will. We're going to a whole yeah. hour. But that, 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 so yeah, that, we'll that little it. bit yeah. kind of started us. We, we got to meet, meet Lars, and his book came out, and we had a great show two years ago. And I noticed that um, Lars mentioned that he's been – following it's almost like a, a a death watch of these the last of these traditional brewers in these little regions in norway where they each have their own fike and um i i wanted lars to tell us a little bit about that because um we think about all these, you know, there's seed savers and, and genetic diversity and, and 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 like you said pete you know, this the Kvikis that, that you guys started using, you know, enabled you to, to brew faster and hotter and all that. So um, there's definitely like this, we know what Lars is doing, but let, let's, let's talk about it. And let's talk about, you know, the fear of these, of losing the keepers of the Kvike. Yeah. So um, this, this yeast comes from uh, people who homebrew beer, according to ancient traditions basically in their own villages so when they brew they brew the way that they learned from their parents who again learned it from their grandparents and so on and together with the knowledge of how to brew a lot of them also got a culture of yeast that you you know when you put the yeast into one beer um it multiplies so after you brewed you have more yeast than when you started and what they do is they just harvest it and keep it until the next beer. And you can keep repitching it essentially for many centuries. And that's what these people have been doing. But uh, this type of brewing has become quite unfashionable and, and seen as you know, uh, a relic from the old days, basically. So a lot of these brewers are, are quite advanced in age. And as you noticed, uh, Jimmy, uh, one of them, though, Finn Wendelbo, he died earlier this summer. And every time that happens, uh, there is there is one brewer less and there, there is one person less to keep these cultures and this whole tradition going. Um, and it, it's really an issue. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a new book and I've been calling people in different regions in Norway to try and see how many people are still brewing. 
and I, w- I was looking into my notes for um, a remote county called Uppdal, just to see people I'd heard rumors about that they were brewing. And, and I look up the first name and you know just type them into Google to try and find them. And the first set, uh, search hit is their death notice. <laughs> so I go to my notes and I search for the second person. And don't you know it, the first hit is the death notice again. So I searched for the third person, and there's a newspaper article saying he was brewing two years ago. I find his phone number, I interview him, and he says he's he's the last person in the village to be brewing, which is, I mean, <laughs> in, in Uppdal, people have been brewing their own beer for, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say 4,000 years. And uh, now there's one family left. So in, in, in the case of this Dolphin Vendipo, who was also a keeper of yeast, uh, I did get an email from his son just before this weekend saying that uh, he wasn't actually a brewer before, but he had decided to start brewing because he wanted to maintain the tradition. So that was really encouraging. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great what, what you've been talking about, and we're going to dive deeper in the show. And let's get Eric on. So the reason I invited Eric on is that um, I read your book, Sourdough Culture, and you had some really great stories about sourdough and there's a lot of overlap with with brewing so it's beer and bread and these magic stories of like going back to jesus and the multiplying of the loaves so let's just tell us the premise of your book eric and you know this gold mine sourdough starter you found uh that went back to the 19th century yeah so that's how i got started is um so my yeast are wild yeast, and uh, they're also infected with bacteria. So I've got maybe a dozen species of yeast and a dozen species of bacteria. So my primary yeast is the same one that you're using in beer, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But uh, you know, one day I, I, I've been making bread for you know 20, 25 years, and my teenage kids who were capable of eating a loaf of, you know, a loaf a day by themselves, I realized, you know, my starter is older than my kids. And and I, I, I was wondering, like, well, how old? How old is this starter really? And I I I, I screwed up my courage and I um, like Viking, it, it it's uh, it was a culture both in the the, the the microbial sense of the word, but also a culture of bread making that can be handed from one person to another. And so it may be true that the old brewers are dying off, but the, the technique can live for another 4,000 years. And the, the, the family of yeasts in Norway could if we just give them one person to the next. Anyway, I called the person who, uh, from whom I got my starter and asked, um, do you remember me? You know, 25 years ago, you gave me a starter. And, and uh, they said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And they t- told me who gave them the starter. And I started tracing it back. And, and, and the farthest I could trace back with any reliability was from the gold rush of Cripple Creek, Colorado in 1893, which means I had this living menagerie zoo of, of little microscopic organisms that nobody's ever actually seen, although that's not totally true. I do have a a scanning electron microscope picture of my bacteria yeast, of which I'm very proud. I have it hanging on my refrigerator. <laughs> um, but but even 1893 is is like well, how did the the culture get to the top of the Rocky Mountains? 
And so I, I, I felt compelled to go all the way back to the beginning and, and, and figure out who invented bread, who first domesticated yeast to make beer and bread. Um, and, and that uh, ultimately becomes a book that uh, Jimmy Carboni reads and uh, calls me up and says, hey, do you want to be on the show? Yeah. One anecdote, you know, just from those whatever thousands of years ago, what, what were a couple of examples of the early domestication of, of yeast for bread? Well, right. So this is, you know, I, I get asked a lot. Okay, so when, when do we know for sure that people are making sourdough bread or making beer? And, and it turns out, um, you know, as Peter says, you know, beer we, we know a little bit more about. The ancient Egyptians, for sure, and probably the ancient Sumerians, were making beer with wild yeast and wild bacteria. So it would have been one of those wild beers with all kinds of funky flavors in it, which, which um, I, I'm actually quite partial to, but again, I'm a sourdough baker. Um, and so rather than selecting for just one yeast, you, whatever falls into your vet, that's what, what you're going to, to be growing. But we, we now have the techniques where we can get the scrapings from the inside of a beer vat that was in ancient Egypt and cultivate those yeasts and ostensibly make a, a beer that would have been had four or five, 6,000 years ago. And the question is, was sourdough bread being made the same time? Are you using the same yeast and you're just using a little less liquid and a little bit more grain and uh, to make bread? Um, and the, the problem is that uh, you don't know for sure that the yeast and bacteria are, are, are in there because you're going to cook that bread at 500 degrees Fahrenheit or something and all those little yeast cells are going to blow up and uh, not be found again, whereas the scrapings, the, the crud on the inside of a beer vat, uh, you can sort of select and, and, and recultivate again. Um, and and I can I can tell a Jesus story if you want, Jimmy, or we can save it for later. So, so um, let's get the Jesus story in. So th th right. there's a lot of highlights in your book. Yeah. So so I um, for, for for those of you who remember Jesus, he, he yeah among his 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 last words, uh, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his followers, he says he says essentially. I am the product of fermentation. He says, my body, my body is bread, which at that time could only have been sourdough bread. Um, and and my, my blood is wine. And, and, and there is something, uh, I, I, all of us listening to this know that there's more to that statement than my body is bread and my blood is wine. There's a, a, a spiritual transformation that, takes place if you let grapes or barley malt or something like that and some liquid and some yeast go to town. They're gonna, you're going to end up with a transformation, a transubstantiation from, from grape juice to wine um, that's going to be a kind of spiritual or magical or something that's going to happen here that, that we can't really explain with earthly terms. And the same is true uh, with bread. And I, I like to think of this story that in some ways Jesus was saying, not only like a sourdough starter, can you share my body with your neighbors by giving them a sample, literally, of your sourdough starter. That would have been known to everybody at the time. Um, 
but if, if we think about the cycles of wheat growing in the fields of the Fertile Crescent is a living organism, which we take the life of, we kill that wheat by harvesting it, and then we grind it into a flour, and then infect it with a sourdough culture, which brings it back to life. Uh, sort of like Jesus, who comes back to life. And then we bake it, which unfortunately kills all the yeast and bacteria all over again, to become this magical substance that's changed from dough to bread, which then brings us sustenance and life. Even though it has died in the oven, it brings us life. So it is this, you know, there's so much to that statement when, when, when Jesus says, my body is bread and my blood is wine. He's saying this is this cycle of transformation, uh, of transubstantiation, of, of this life-giving substance that, as Lars said at the very beginning, essentially can live forever, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Is wow. like, I, well, it, I it is amazing that you you both are, are onto this idea of these, yeah, perpetuating, you know, yeasts and things. And, and Lars, let's let our listeners hear more about, about your first book and just a little bit how you first started, you know, in, investigating Kvike and these traditional yeasts and, brew, and brewing traditions. Yeah, so in my case, it started with, um, I, I was interested in, in beer and trying different kinds of beer and seeing what they would like. Um, and I heard these stories about there being something strange in, in Lithuania. So I went there and had a few of the beers and they were just, uh, they blew my mind, not just because they were good, but also because I couldn't tell what they were. Um, you know, I'd spent 10 years learning about beer at that point, And I just had absolutely no idea what was going on in, in these beers, where they came from or, or why they were like that. And, and it wasn't very easy to find out more. So in the, in the first beer bar, like halfway through the first beer, I, I just went back to the bartender who recommended it and, and, and tried to ask her, like, why, why does the beer taste like this? Is, is it the hops? Or... And she looks at me and she says, what is hops? <laughs> like, oh, this isn't gonna work. Uh, uh, and but eventually, what I worked out was that uh, in Lithuania they still had this tradition of people brewing beer on the farms, like they always had, uh, according to traditions that had absolutely nothing to do with with modern beer. And when I realized that, the next thing I, I realized was that I'd heard about this sort of thing in Norway too. And then when I tried to look into that, we pre pretty quickly started hearing stories about this quake yeast. And so me and the Canadian beer journalist spent uh, basically nine months putting together uh, an expedition through uh, rural Norway. So the trouble is uh, these people are brewing for themselves, you know, for their family and their neighbors. So they're not selling the beer. And so there's no... There's no public registry. They don't have any businesses. There's no advertising. You really need to find, you know, people who are doing this in their own cellars for themselves. So that was that was really hard. But then when we when we went there and we saw what they were doing, it was uh, it was mind blowing in several ways. So one thing was was this fact that they had their own yeast that they just inherited from their 
uh, ancestors, and they just kept it going themselves. And according to the textbooks, uh, that should be wild yeast, and you should be getting uh, sour beer. But it wasn't like that at all. It was it was obviously domesticated yeast. They were producing excellent non-sour beer. It wasn't funky at all. Uh, and of course, it had all these amazing properties. And then we learned that other brewers were doing a lot of stuff that the textbooks say, oh, you can't do that. But they'd never read the textbooks. They didn't know that. <laughs> they just did what their parents did. And it, of course, it worked. Um, yeah. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the beginning. And then I came back and I was like, but all of these people are doing different things. And, and how many other insane things are there to discover here? And, and the end result was the book, basically. Yeah. And then like for Pete, for you with a, a science background, I mean, how can you explain that this yeast, you know, the, the Vike yeast could, could operate faster and at a higher temperature? I mean, or is there that much variation with, with the different yeasts that, that you brew with? There is. And I'm, I'm just assuming that was maybe they were brewing in the summertime when it was quite hot, with, obviously without any temperature control. And then they were selecting by tasting the beer and, you know, through selection of this made a good beer and this made a better beer and this made a better beer. They kind of selected for a strain that did not produce fusel alcohols at high temperature. But even beyond that, I'm, I'm not sure why it's so high because that's compared to like, obviously that same process went on everywhere else in the world, but somehow in Norway, they got this strain that's very high temperature, um, fermentation fermentation and uh produces that, a nice uh, clean beer i guess i should add that um this thing about fermenting at body temperature so 100 fahrenheit that's not special to norway um farmhouse brewers were doing that in in the uk and russia and the baltics uh pretty much everywhere and it seems that all of these well, not all, nearly all of these yeasts that they have been using, at least the ones that we've found, um, because I've, I've collected yeast from Russia and uh, Lithuania and Latvia as well. Those all have this ability to handle high temperatures. And it's uh, the, the, genetically, it's a mechanism that, that the yeast is using that sort of exists in normal yeast as well, but it's, it's not as fully developed. Um, so basically, uh, the yeast is using a sugar that's called trehalose that covers the uh, the inside and the outside of the cell wall and sort of protects it against the heat. This is something that uh, insects, for example, use to to uh, survive freezing in winter as well. I'm wondering how we ended up with these, you know, common strains at this point in history that have the reverse. Maybe we maybe it's the opposite of that process where. When refrigeration developed, we sort of selected for cold fermenting yeast, and that's aside from lager yeast. That's that's been my theory actually that that's what happened, and and you know commercial brewers had a way to cool the beer before fermentation, and so for them it made sense I to see. ferment cold so that the the lactic acid bacteria couldn't turn the beer sour as easily. Uh, whereas people brewing on farms, they were brewing you know 150 liters. Don't know what that is in gallons, but it but it's big, uh, like a bathtub, and in big thick wooden vessels. So for them to cool the beer down until you can pitch the yeast, that takes a long time. 
and they've been brewing all day. They want to get to bed. They really want to get the yeast in. And they also know that the longer you wait before you put the yeast in, the more time you give the bacteria to get started. So I, I, I think that sort of pushed commercial brewers and farmhouse brewers in opposite directions. Yeah, and I, I'm just, I'm wondering how this, you know, co these quite strains managed to stay clean as far as like, you know, not having a mixed culture of bacteria and other wild yeast, like, especially with the way that they were stored. We, well, uh, they were often dried between use. So then, uh, you know, once you've dried it, nothing happens. There's, there's nothing growing there anymore. So you sort of freeze it until you put it back in the next beer. And if, if you think about the, the environment that, that this is happening in, so you're, you're pitching the yeast into, you know, sugary liquid, which is a gold mine for all sorts of microorganisms. They just love this. It's just full of energy. Um, very quickly, what happens is you put in a lot of yeast, right? And if there is some contamination, it's going to be just a few cells by comparison. And then the yeast goes to work and it starts eating all the simple sugars. It pumps out a lot of alcohol that nobody else likes. Uh, removes all the oxygen that the other organisms need, and it lowers the pH. It makes it really, really hard for anybody else to survive in there. So I think that's really the answer. But there are many organisms, you know, as we call the beer spoilers, and you could ask any lambic brewer, <laughs> there's the passing of the baton. Even in that environment of low pH and high alcohol content, um, so it's interesting to me how they were relatively clean. Like there was well, no pure. Well, if you if you look at the lambic fermentation, fermentation mixed. There's there's been studies of lambic fermentation, right? Where you you don't add any yeast. You just uh, put the wort into a, a barrel, and there's some stuff living in the wood, and it comes out and it ferments what's in there. But if you if you look at those studies, you see that in the beginning of fermentation, it's totally dominated by beer yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and all the other guys start growing later. And yeah, the farmhouse it, it, brewers, it's, it's they would remove their yeast after 24 hours. So they weren't giving the other guys time to grow. And then, Mark, are they, are they inoculating very large quantities of yeast? No, too? they're not. <laughs> it, it varies. Some would put in quite a lot and some would put in very little. And it doesn't make any difference, does it? It doesn't seem to, but I think I think you have to realize that even let's say you are putting in very little, which means like uh, with all that sugar, with all that sugar ready to go, they reproduce so quickly it doesn't make that big a difference. Yeah, in the yeah. But uh, but you're starting from very different starting points, though. So uh, what you're putting in of yeast, let's if you're putting in very little uh, into 150 liters, you're maybe putting in something like uh, how to say this, like a slice of bread, the same volume. Yeah, and and any contamination that you got in there is going to be a lot smaller. And Saccharomyces cerevisiae is really good at growing fast. Of course, it doesn't always win. Sometimes this goes bad and it goes sour, but then they throw it away, or wait, or they keep it and wait. No, <laughs> they uh, usually they have uh, in the old days. Every every single farm would have yeast, right? So if it really went sour and you didn't have any more uh, of your yeast, you would go to the neighbor and you would you would get good yeast. Um, 
but the thing is you every time that you brew afterwards you have more yeast than you started with so it's not really very difficult to keep more yeast than you need so that you have a backup if you need it so so pete is kind of right he was saying that there's a selection process that that has occurred uh with the long tradition of the Kvikes, Lars? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's, but it's uh, uh, it's tempting to say, like he suggested, that um, the yeast adapted to the way that the farmhouse brewers are using it. Uh, but we we don't know for sure whether they adapted their brewing to the yeast that they had, however they got it, or whether the yeast adapted to their way of brewing so for the uh the fast fermentation for example it looks like probably the yeast adapted to the way that they're using it because they're harvesting it so early um but for this this response to heat uh, the use of trehalose and, and all of those genes we don't really know um it's perfectly possible that it adapted but you you, you can't look at the genes and say yes it adapted you just know you know where it ended up, but not how it got there. Yeah. Well, it is amazing that, that the Kvike has become something that commercial brewers are, are using. Um, just to talk about a couple of beer styles, um, it, I read that you're going to a Lithuanian raw ale festival. What is Lithuanian raw ale? Um, so... In modern brewing, um, the way you brew is typically you mix hot water and the malts, you get sugar out, that's called wort. Then you boil the wort for an hour and you cool and you ferment. And raw ale is when you skip the boil, uh, which is one of those things that the textbooks say that you can't do that. It's gonna lead to several types of problems, including uh, sour beer, because by boiling, you kill all the bacteria. Um, but historically, uh, until just a few centuries ago, uh, kettles were super expensive. Most people didn't have them. Um, in fact, even just 150 years ago, Norwegian farmers were using copper kettles as status objects to show how rich they were, which sounds absurd <laughs> today, but I, I assure you it's true. So, and then when you don't have a kettle, uh, Boiling uh, the beer for an hour is going to be really hard. So historically, people didn't do that. And um, this is kind of like, imagine, imagine you're making tomato soup, right? The recipe always says to boil the, boil the soup. Well, imagine if you just skip that. It's going to taste different, right? And um, that's the case for these beers as well. They, they just have very different flavors from, from normal beer. Uh, and, and most professional brewers, the first time they hear about it, they, they think, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible. But um, to continue the tomato soup uh, metaphor, Spanish gazpacho is never boiled. It's perfectly edible. It, it doesn't taste like normal tomato soup, but it's perfectly edible. And it's the same way with this. It's, it's, uh, it's a different kind of beer. Yeah, this is one of many interesting questions we have for you today. Um, I'm going to go back, back to Eric and back to his book. Eric, um, jumping ahead from, you know, ancient times to the 19th century, um, you had a really fascinating section in your book about industrialization. And um, I know you got to go and, and study, you're a scholar, 
um, what was it? A, 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 what was your Ful Fulbright Award or something? Right. Um, right. And you were studying development of the cotton textile industry. So, so, so just tell us like the overlaps between the industrialization of 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 yeast for, for bread and and how that can relate to beer as well. Well, I, so I, I, you know, it, it took uh, a, great, a great deal of restraint uh, right at right at the outset. You know, P Peter pointed out that one of the the, the great benefits to craft brewers of uh, Viking yeast is that it works at higher temperatures and any microbe that works uh, at a higher temperature is going to be much quicker at what it does. And, and um, that essentially, that, that way of thinking <laughs> turned out to be the pathway toward the destruction of bread that I would consider worth eating. Um, and, and so what happens is you have, uh, you know, it starts really in the 1600s with Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who's the first one who ever looks at a microscopic organism and, and, and is the first person to ever see yeast, but he doesn't know what they are, right? He, he, he says these are yeast, but he doesn't know if they're animals or vegetables or minerals or chem chemical compounds. Um, and, and it's going to take 200 years of, of experimentation uh, across Europe for, for, for scientists to, to, to finally conclude when Louis Pasteur says, you know what, yeast are biological organisms. They do fermentation. They consume sugars as everything that Lars was describing. They, they excrete carbon dioxide and alcohol. Um, but at that same time in the, the 19th century, you have this ability to now start to isolate yeast from other microscopic organisms that people don't like uh, the outcomes from. So all of these things that make sour beers are, are really, turns out, go out of fashion, I would say, as much as anything else. And, and I, I it, um, uh, Carlsberg, who's Danish, not Norwegian, uh, is the first person to ever isolate a, sort of a single species of yeast and use it for fermentation and uh, for, for making beer. And so uh, that's sort of a, a, a fun fact that, that also that being Scandinavian and being Danish, he's like, well, sure, anybody wants to borrow this yeast can have some, just come to my lab and I'll show you how I isolated it and you can have some and take it home. Um, Hard to imagine, you know, an American entrepreneur or scientist, you know, not patenting right away uh, is new discovery. The, the problem is, though, once you have yeast that you can start to really select for its speed rather than its uh, ability to, to make flavor, you end up with a, a bread yeast that... Um, is essentially genetically selected to be super powerful, right? So if you go to the store and buy Fleischmann's yeast or Red Ball or whatever, Red Star yeast or something like that, um, and put that into a bread, what happens an hour later, it will rise, you know, guarantee it will rise in an hour. And then it becomes the only food I know that you have to punch before you do, <laughs> do anything with, right? You actually have to punch it down once or twice. It's so... Vigorous, but but to me it, it's a symbol of kind of uh, uh, profit coming before flavor, which is the goal in making a wonder bread or a, a commercial bread is speed and reproducibility and 
strength and all that. And so there's a little bit of uh, pause I have. Like Feige, I love the 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 the, uh, the idea of maintaining a culture in both sense of the word word that are thousands of years old and and, and, a, and a collection of beasts that can really only be found in this farmhouse or this set of farmhouses or something like that. Um, but I worry that if get you know gets into the wrong hands, essentially into corporate hands, right? You can imagine imagine Anheuser Busch figuring out how to brew beer even faster. Um, that the the that 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 speed here equals a way to make more money rather than to to maintain the tradition that is. Uh, designed to be somewhat slow. And so I guess in that regard, maybe beer and bread diverge a little bit, which is a key ingredient to bread making is time, is that slower is better. Um, Whereas beer, you know, waiting three, four weeks for a a beer to finish fermenting uh, is a long time to wait. And I, I suppose that's one reason I like making bread is like, if it doesn't come out, come out well, I've only lost a day or two. Um, if uh, making beer and it doesn't come out well, I've, you know, I've lost a month and five yeah. gallons at the very but least. Eric, in your book, you really did follow the story of, of this, this sourdough starter. And, um, you know, when, when you talked about the industrialization, you were talking about some interesting processes of washing yeast and pulling the early days of the commercial yeast of how it was made from brewer's yeast or from beer. Right. Um, shed some light on that because you really did a lot. Of, your book is very well researched, so there's a lot of history that I'd never heard of before. Right, and 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 uh, Jimmy just makes sure sometime at the end to, to 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 make sure that most people when they hear very well researched think, oh my god, I'm not going to read that <laughs> book. Um, so uh, it, it's well researched, but I hope it's also a, a good read in that it's a it's kind of a mystery of um, how did we. Uh, maintain a culture for 6,000 years and lose it all, you know, between 1850 and 1950. And, and, and it is that process of how pure can we make yeast? How well can we wash and strain out all the other microscopic organisms? The first step is that you have to be able to see them and recognize that they're not something religious or magical that just comes from taking a handful of this, this foam that was on the beer or that was, right? It, because it's the same thing. And, and, and what I like about talking to brewers is that they recognize that beer is liquid bread and vice versa. Um, and so I do have a question for you, Lars, before I go too far, which is, does anybody try making bread from the yeast that are found in Norway, these spiky yeasts? Yeah, people have done that. In fact, some of the farmhouse brewers have done that, and uh, they, they say it works really well. Um, I like what you were saying about the properties of bread yeast earlier, because it's uh, they are very similar to the properties of, of quake yeast for whatever reason. I'm, I'm not sure why. In, in what regard? Well, uh, speed of fermentation, uh, ability to handle high temperature, and also ability to handle high alcohol. So it's, it's remarkably similar. Well, and, and I like what you were saying, which is that it, I, I think of it as a kind of a co-evolution or a co-adaptation, which is that these the, the, the Kvike yeast uh, survive only because these Norwegian farmers keep them alive. 
But the opposite is also true. You know, in some ways, these yeasts have kept these farmers alive, right? It made sure that they they had, uh, 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 you know, uh, at the very least, the liquid that wasn't contaminated with anything else. Um, you know, so that there was a, a pure. I mean, this is the history of beer, right? Which is that it it, it makes sure no other bacteria that might do you harm. Yeah, uh, provides a sort of new source of nutrition um, and vitamins that you can't get any other way. That's a huge subject, but um, Norway is so far north, basically, that um, people didn't have enough grain that they could drink beer all year. Um, so in fact, Nor Norwegians relied on, for most of the year, a weird drink made from uh, the the soured leftovers of cheese making uh, mixed with water. And so being able to drink beer once or twice a year was, was a huge event a for, the, for, the, yeah, for the traditional Norwegians. And, and then what are they using for grain? Are they using rye or are they using wheat or barley? Or? I, predominantly it was barley. And, and so the consequence of that was that traditional Norwegian bread, for the most part, was not leavened. Uh, it, it was made from, um, or it was made in, into these wafer-thin crisp things. So they baked actually once right. a year and because... they kept these stacks for the rest of the year. So uh, even in southeastern right. Norway, uh, the, the total wheat harvest for, for one year might be two barrels for one parish. Right, right, which doesn't surprise me. And so that 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 turns out to be uh, the history of bread making is is very closely tied to the limits, the geographic limits of where wheat can grow. Yeah, yeah. And wheat exactly. is a pretty finicky crop, which is it, it likes just the right amount of water and just the right amount of temperature. And if it gets either too cold or too damp, you're going to have to grow oats and barley and rye, yeah. which is why the, the, the sustenance foods in Scotland are oat cakes and in Germany and Denmark and Norway, it's rye breads. Um, and if you really have to, then you go to barley crackers. But I, I will tell you that in my research, I, you know, the Romans, the ancient Romans who made uh, essentially imported wheat from uh in order to make sourdough but they imported wheat from north africa from from the middle egypt, east yeah. and egypt but the, the real bread basket uh, of ancient rome was ukraine yeah. uh, which is still <laughs> the world's wheat, wheat wheat basket and and they considered barley bread and barley crackers to be fit only for for pigs and prisoners is how they described it. Yeah, that, and I guess Norwegians. That's what they thought of our our beer as well, right? So they called us barbarians, <laughs> right, right. and then uh, they 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 have a drink made from rotted barley. One Roman source writes. Wow. Yeah. Right. And, and did they like it? Um, well, in like in the UK, uh, the Roman army had lots of breweries and so on. So. I, I, the elite yeah, in Rome just probably like, didn't yeah. like it. Right, right. And, and I love this, though, but if you look at a map of, of the UK where Hadrian's Wall separates uh, England from Scotland, Hadrian's Wall is ostensibly put up to keep those vicious Scottish warriors from 
you know, climbing, climbing down onto, you know, the Roman occupiers. It's also exactly the line at which wheat no longer grows. <laughs> you know, north of Hadrian's Wall, um, there is no wheat, and the Romans refused to eat bread that was made from anything other than wheat or drink beer made from anything other than the yeast and, and, and wheat that they were accustomed to. So I always think of Hadrian's Wall as, you know, to keep the oats out. The wheat walls. <laughs> It's, it's this probably, is a great yeah. conversation. It's probably <laughs> also a limit where suddenly population density goes dramatically down, uh, and so politically controlling that area is going to be a lot harder, probably. So, so it, it makes sense in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and population goes down because wheat is a, a far more nutritious yeah. crop. It gives you so much more protein per acre per hectare. Than, than barley or, or, or oats will. And so you're right. Yeah, I, I love doing that kind of history of, okay, wh why are these things here? I mean, there's a political reason and then it's all about food, right? Yeah. Hey, we're off, Lars, hold on. We're off to a great start. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. There's over 30 podcasts every week, food, farming, chefs, cocktails, and beer on, on Heritage Radio Network. All right, so Lars and, and Eric, both authors, were talking about history of sourdough starters and kvike yeast. And, and Pete, um, what, what, we want to get you back in because um, you, you've got your little scientist brain here. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to ask, Eric, well, first of all, have you ever had a beer made with a sourdough starter? But secondly, um, do you know, is there like a symbiotic relationship going on between the Saccharomyces and the Lactobacillus? Like, how does this mixed culture stay a mixed culture as it gets passed between bread and, and bread maker? So, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first question 
first, which is no, I have never had a beer made with a sourdough starter. I I'm sure it's a, been done. <laughs> I, I'm sure it has. I have had sour beers, which of course are very, very similar. And I have I have made bread with harvested brewer's yeast, which how was that? Well, it was, it was, you know, it was interesting. So I, I, you know, I had, I went to my master brewer and I said, okay, um, this is how they, they did this for hundreds and hundreds of years is they made bread with, with brewer's yeast. The, the, it was sort of before cookbooks. So nobody has a recipe for how much yeast do you need. And, but, 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 um, in the end, what was interesting to me is it, uh, uh, it made my bread rise. I'm always sort of astonished that it works exactly the way you would expect it to. If you, right, if you give yeast some sugars to eat, they will do what they do and generate carbon dioxide and the bread will rise. So it did exactly what it should have done. But compared to sourdough bread, it was, in my opinion, uh, uh, mo monotonic. It only had one flavor, which is what bread made from only commercial yeast has. It doesn't have the, the, the acids that are generated by lactobacillus. So to get, get, get to your other question, it is very, very um, uh, symbiotic. Yes, you know, and that the, the, the yeast and bacteria break down sugars one for the other, and the yeast are tolerant of a certain pH that the lactobacillus uh, will drop the, the, the solution to a pH of, you know, five or six, but the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, as you know, will survive under those conditions. And so that part, they are very well adapted one to the other. The question is, and uh, I spent a considerable amount of time trying to investigate this, is, is does, does provenance matter? Is it, is it like a wine where if you have a, a sourdough starter like I have, I have three different ones, but you know, if I have, I have one from 1893 and I have a Russian rye starter came from a rye bread factory in Russia in 1960. Like, does the age of this thing matter? And, and, and you know, do I, if I have a fike yeast that's 4,000 years old or like a 400 years old, is that any different than if I started, uh, you know, with creating a new fike yeast tomorrow? Would it taste any different? And, and the jury is sort of out on that. Nobody really knows uh, about whether these, populations are stable over time or whether they change over time. And, and it's because we can't afford to do the experiment, right? To do the experiment, I'd have to take my starter and I'd have to give it to, to one to Jimmy and one to Lars and one to Peter. And Peter takes his to New York City and Lars takes his to, to uh, Norway. And the conditions change and we say, do the species inside here change? Uh, in, in a day, in a week, in a year, in five years, or something like that, and that just gets to be prohibitively expensive. And so, no, we can't even answer the question because it's just too hard an experiment to run. And I love that fact that we can't know the answer, and so it remains sort of mysterious. What 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 does transfer when Lars gives me a kvikis from Norway? If I make it the way the old timers do, is the story. The story travels with the with the culture, and that the story is as old as uh, the person who's given it to you, and to whom you're going to give it. And that really can't be can't be broken. No, that's great, Lars. Let me ask you mentioned dogfin. Uh, just tell us about another of of your keepers of the fike. 
just just to show us there's a range of you know different yeasts different regions right so what we found is that we've managed to locate something like 40 different people in western norway that all maintain uh their own cultures and then when you when you look at those genetically it turns out they're all the same type of yeast uh, they're not the same but genetically they're more much more closer to each other than to anything else um and then if you uh, Nor if you look at Norway on the map, you, you need a good map for this. You'll see that it's divided by a mountain chain running uh, north-south. So there's a west of the mountains and there's a east of the mountains. And uh, it turns out that the people east of the mountains, they have a different type of yeast. It's related to quake, but it's not the same. It's, it's genetically, it's noticeably different. So I was talking earlier today to um, a man named Sverre Skrindo. So he lives uh, high up in, in one of the valleys in eastern Norway, re really close to where the valley ends in the mountains. And uh, he learned to brew from his father, but um, <laughs> he's not actually the keeper of the yeast because for some reason his, his mother ended up with that job so he would always do the brewing and then uh she would be keeping the yeast dried on pieces of cloth uh in a plastic box in the house and so it was her job to to take out a, a piece of cloth figure out which one smelled the best and then cut off a piece of it and then sweater would bring her some of the unfermented beer and she would be heating it on the, um, the stove top. Uh, and this, this, this wasn't an induction stove. It was the old fashioned kind where you have a sort of uh, stone like thing that gets heated by electricity from below. So to not heat it too much, she would put uh, a trivet made of uh, spun metal thread that would lift the, the saucer with, with the unfermented beer roughly a centimeter off the plate. And then Make it grow in there, and then once it was once it was time for uh, once Sveide was finished making uh, the unfermented beer, she would bring this and they would pour it in. Um, and unfortunately, she died this summer as well. But uh, Sveide is still brewing. But he ha he has to keep his own yeast now. It's amazing all all, all these stories. Lawrence, I have a question for you. Is is there anybody who uh, there's a fellow in Belgium? for example, who's got a so-called library of sourdough cultures from around the world. Is there anybody who's uh, sort of capturing and preserving any of these uh, sort of very local yeasts? Yeah, um, so the f that was almost the first thing that I did. Uh, so before I went to meet the, f the first people I ever met who had quack, uh, I got in touch with the National Collection of Yeast Cultures in the UK. That was my, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I asked them if they could um, keep it. They were very interested. So I've been sending them quite a lot of the cultures. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there's uh, something called the Nagoya Protocol has been introduced. It's uh, very, very careful about... Uh, preserving local populations' uh, ownership rights in their 
local microorganisms, which is a great thing. Uh, but it means that now NCYC requires signatures and paperwork to, to take on a new culture. And uh, not everyone is willing to sign away their rights to the culture, which means I can't get NCYC to keep it. Um, I've been trying to also send to other labs that only do research. And that's been relatively successful. And now, uh, more recently, there's uh, there's a government-funded project in, in Western Norway to, to set up a, a yeast bank to also keep yeast there. Um, so, Which makes sense. Doesn't Norway also have the, the global seed bank? Yeah, we do, actually. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense to great. keep these things where they came from, right? So uh, right. the trouble is, you know, Will this have funding for the next 150 years? Um, but I, I try to make as many copies as possible. I mean, that's the best safeguard, right? No, exactly. No, I do the same as I give sourdough cultures to as many people as possible, so that if I lose it, uh, I can I can get it back. But it goes back to Peter's question: uh, it, it, When I get it back, is it the same or not? And uh, uh, we don't know other than. Like, I can say that the story is, is true, that this is the starter from X that went to this other person and has now come back to me if, if need be. But I, you know, I, I hear you, Lars, right? what we really want to do is preserve the tradition. Yes. Because, yes. because it's so important and because it tastes good, right? We wouldn't do it if it tasted, tasted terrible. Yeah, that's the, that's the other thing that uh, really this has brought home to me, that the reason this survived is that these people are making beer that are not like any beer that you can buy. And, and, and that's a huge part of why it's important to them and why they invest so much time in keeping it alive. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's talk about taste and flavors. So, uh, Lars, um, you'd mentioned, let's talk about some of the farmhouse ales that, that you've tasted. You mentioned a Voss style farmhouse ale. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and what it actually tastes like. Yeah, so uh, I was lucky that earlier this summer, Eva um, Yaitong from Voss dropped by my house and gave me a, like a five liter can of, of his farmhouse ale. Uh, so the thing that is traditional or that is characteristic of, of that specific style is uh, you use a lot of juniper branches to add flavor to the beer. And also, uh, they boil it for many hours, like they boil away half the beer, uh, and that gives the beer a lot of uh, a lot of caramel flavor. So this this beer that he's given me is, he says he thinks it's about ten percent, which which is probably right. I've got it in my glass now. Uh, it's it's quite sweet, and at the same time, it has this fruity bitterness from the juniper branches uh, and the caramel obviously and then um his strike has done something strange it adds flavors kind of like cognac and and maybe cherry it's really unusual um but he's a he's a super good brewer so all of these flavors really really blend well together it's uh and what 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 temperature do you drink the the farmhouse ale at? Oh, uh, you're supposed to get them from the cellar, um, and but people would then leave them in in the main, you know, the living room for a good while, 
and serve them out of a big bowl there. So, you know, 10 to 15 degrees would be perfectly normal. Wow. And Eric, for you, for, for sourdough, um, give us a recipe. You, you, you do in your book, Sourdough Culture, you, you do, I love some of your historical breads. I like the New England brown bread. Um, you, is there a, a, a bread style or recipe you want to give a shout out to from your book? I, well, the, the, the New England brown bread is, is, uh, is it turned out to be a, a people's favorite. Uh, my absolute favorite is whatever is freshly out of the oven and still a little bit warm. And I don't really care what it is. Um, and, and, and I think uh, the, the shout out I want to give is, is that bread really only takes four ingredients. It, it really only takes uh, flour, water, uh, a little bit of salt, and you don't really need the salt, but if you don't remember to put it in, it doesn't taste very good. And and the leavening, which is a sourdough culture, and what 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 is true of beer is true of bread, which is like every valley has its own tradition about what the ratio of flour to water is, or how much uh, time to give something, or whether I should braid it, or put a hole in the middle, or, uh, you know, so, so, and those traditions vary, not just valley to valley, but country to country, and, and, and they take on a kind of significance that, um, I, I would say those two things, uh, let's bring it back to Jesus, right? <laughs> Which is that there's a kind of significance to these fermented products that, that, that will bring people with the, with the aroma um, back to a home, uh, a sense of home and a home country that almost nothing else can do, right? Which is I, I can make a rye bread here in Western Pennsylvania and give it to a German immigrant and bring them to tears. Um, as they think, oh my goodness, this is the taste of, of home. Um, and so, so bread, bread, and I, I suspect beer is very much the same, uh, uh, something that just really speaks to our hearts as well as our stomachs. And Eric, about, about flavors and things in your bread, there, there is one section, you, you seem to like things like seeds, and, and you, you've, you've got this childlike joy when when you get a really good loaf of bread, what is it about seeds in your bread? It, it, um, it, the, the, I'll be honest. The real childlike joy I get is from from um, playing with my food with my hands. Um, and it's something you stop doing when you're a child and you don't get a chance to do again until you stick your hands into dough and get covered with flour and, 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 and water and clop. And, and there's something joyful about that. And then something just miraculous about that transformation of dough coming out of an oven as bread. Uh, and seeds is just personal taste. There's nothing special about them really. <laughs> and then last with Pete, um, Pete, what, what are you drinking? I mean, you, you're, you're great history, home brewer, brewer, um, many of my favorite beers that you, you've made and make. Um, are you brewing anything with a Kvike these days? Uh, yeah, we're still, we've brought in the, uh, well, we attempted some, you know, kind of fakey lagers with the Osfog, but it, it didn't quite work out. <laughs> That's supposed to be the very clean, non-estery bike and uh, uh it's 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 producing a lot more character than a lager yeast would but but what i'm drinking is a is a pure lager right now it's a it's a 3470 
American Pilsner with, it's actually an adjunct lager with corn and some German hops, and it's delicious. So, Peter, can I ask you, how do you, how do you get a fike in New York? You know, pretty much all of the, the uh, commercial yeast labs have, the, have it now, and it's probably through Lars originally. Um, and they're banking them, too, but not all the ones that all the, you know, the, the ones that he's found from individuals. I don't know where these... Lars, where did where did they get these? Do you think? Um, well, <laughs> I, I I I listened uh, I I listened to Eric talking earlier about the possible development of quite yeast with some uh, misgivings because uh, I did give all these yeast labs uh, these yeasts. I um, I sent it to them in the hope of making more copies and, and preserving it. Um, and of course, what happened was exactly what Eric described. That uh, people thought. Yeah, so people use these for traditional beers. That's super interesting. Yet use it to make uh, IPA that's fermented really fast. Uh, yeah, that's that's my fault, but uh, that's what happened. Yeah, we're adapting them to you know craft beer, not sacrificing quality. <laughs> no, no, they don't. That's true. Well, you guys, we went, we went, we scratched the surface of going pretty deep into something that we haven't talked too much about in, is is yeast and um, Pete. You're always my go-to for anything science-related in, in beer. Um, I just want to thank you guys all for joining me. I think we've said covered everything that, that I can handle right now because I'm, I'm getting my notebooks out. And another time, I really want to know from you guys how the hell sourdough starters and kvikis survived the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, I think I got that from Eric's book. Um, that, that's the last one. Who wants to take a stab at that? How did sourdough, you know, everything about food traditions, how did any of these survive the 19th and 20th century with all the industrialization of food and beer? Eric? Well, I'll, I'll take a first step, but, but, but I'm going to use Lars's answer, which is it, it, it sort of hides in remote valleys uh, far away from civilization um, until some hipster in Brooklyn discovers it again. It, it, it's... Uh, um, you really had to have it sort of some old tradition far away uh, is what kept sourdough culture alive at all. And, and I think uh, farmhouse ales is sort of the same way. Well, that's good. All right, guys. So one more time, we'll go around the room. Lars, thank you so much. Um, Pete and Eric for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to Armin Spingen, our engineer. And I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.